Hi, this is Chris Leonard, the city historian of Schenectady. I'm speaking with Bob Cudmore about the new book, Schenectady Genesis, Volume 2. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Schenectady Genesis, Volume 2, The Creation of an American City from an Anglo-Dutch Town, is our topic. This is a new book edited by Chris Leonard, who's the Schenectady City Historian, who joins us now. The book written by Niskayuna attorney John Gearing, who will join us later in this episode. The new book about the city of Schenectady uh, covers events in uh, the budding city from 1760 to 1800. It's a follow-up to Susan Staffa's first volume of the Schenectady history, which covered 1661 to 1774. Chris, who was Susan Staffa? Dr. Staffa was a very renowned historian who studied and done much work on uh, Egyptian history and archaeology, but she was also from Schenectady and had a deep roots with the archaeology and the history communities here. And she helped to form uh, an organization called the Colonial Schenectady Project. That organization set about to produce the first volume of Schenectady Genesis with uh, Dr. Staffa at the helm. In fact, that organization still exists, and, and they kind of, are they the publishers, or I don't know how you would describe it, of the current book? Yes, the, uh, the Colonial Schenectady Project is still around and still doing very good work. They are the publishing group behind uh, Schenectady Genesis 2. The book was originally set to be published through an academic publisher, and there's a long tail there, but uh, things fell through, and uh, the Colonial Schenectady Project is the actual publisher of the book. I noticed that in, one, in the Daily Gazette story about the new book, they quote a man named George Marshall, He's president of the uh, of that foundation or organization. Yes, George Marshall is the uh, the president of the Colonial Schenectady Project, and he's been he's helmed the uh, the organization through the eight years that this book has been uh, worked on. Uh, John Gearing wrote the new book. And you're the editor. What was your role in uh, p- putting out the book? I was brought in by the uh, Colonial Schenectady Project in uh, November of 2018 to serve as the editor of the project. What we, we were working with a, an academic publisher at the time, so I was coming in to give the book a full technical edit and, and a full grammatical and, and, and preparation edit, along with setting images to the text and getting some image permissions and the like, and then also setting the book to the standards of the academic publisher. Did that change? What did you end up doing, though? Because you say you didn't ha- end up with the academic publisher. Well, I worked on I worked on taking the manuscript, turning it into a publishable manuscript in November of uh, 2018 through April of 2019. So in, in April of 2019, we handed off the, the full manuscript ready to publish to the academic publisher. That group seemed to be having some problems. Uh, while, we, while we were working with them, we went through three editors there. As things continued to move on, even though they had the full and ready to publish manuscript, they couldn't give us a publication date. And we're intoning that uh, they wouldn't get to it until 20. 22 or 2023. So at that point, we asked for the uh, manuscript back. And by that point, it was about March of 2020. So when we got it back, COVID hit. And uh, we reached out to a number of other uh, publishers through the spring and early summer of 2020. Not much was happening there. So we decided to go the self-publishing route. And we'll be talking with John Gearing, who's author of the second volume later in the program. Uh, Why was he selected for the job? Well, John was brought in due to his vast knowledge of, uh, you know, colonial Schenectady and his respect within uh, the the county uh, 
historical uh, community. Um, I mean, he really has an unparalleled knowledge of you know, the breadth of, of the history of colonial Schenectady. Just one, one of the things to say along those lines. He's a, you know, he's a lawyer by trade, so that really gave him a lot of you know, knowledge to work off of to review you know, a lot of the ancient deeds and ancient journals and similar materials and, and really pull out what the, the depth of the meaning of some of those things were. Well, that's what I was actually going to mention, that he's a, a, an attorney, and like yourself, he came to Schenectady from somewhere else, but he's lived there a long time and kind of, I don't know what, brought kind of uh, sort of fresh eyes, I suppose, to Schenectady history. Yeah, I mean, at, at one point, Schenectady was the, you know, the gateway to the West. Now a lot of us historians are coming in and just staying here because there is just a great and enjoyable history to talk about. I mean, being the city historian, I, I, I've got centuries to, you know, even back to proto-Indian times worth of, uh, you know, information and history to talk about. And if you know me, that's what I like to do. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and in Susan Stafford's first uh, book, 1661 to 1774, let's focus on that first number, 1661. I mean, that's when there was a settlement you could have called Schenectady. For yes. America, among U- Europeans, that's a pretty... Uh, old date. Well, I mean, when, when you're talking about this area and uh, Dutch settlement, I mean, you'd really have to go back to 1609 with uh, Henry Hudson. So when you talk about the history of the U.S., at least in the education that comes out in the public schools, you're usually talking about uh, the, the Mayflower landing in 1620, but this area had, had people from Europe, you know, working and trading already. But yeah, 16, when we talk about 1661, that's when um, Aaron Van Curler and uh, 20, 22 families came up to Schenectady to, uh, you know, to begin the trade post that Schenectady would be at the time, and then the settlement as well. How much uh, does the book cost, and where is it available? The book sells for twenty nine ninety nine, and we're really happy that it's at twenty nine ninety nine because the first book, which we put out in you know many years ago, sold for twenty nine dollars. So we didn't really go up that much for it. But you can get it locally at the Open Door Bookstore from the uh, uh, Schenectady County Historical Society on Washington Avenue. Uh, the Fort Plain Museum is also carrying it, and they have a wonderful bookstore. And you can also get it through Amazon in uh, paperback or ebook formats. But if you can, buy local. You know, it's a book about Schenectady, so let's support the community. And it's been doing pretty well, right? It has been doing well. And on October 13th, it was the number one bestseller in new releases in the colonial history period uh, on Amazon.com. So... It's a bestseller. Very good. <laughs> well, we'll be talking uh, in just a moment now with John Gearing, the the author of the of the book. Uh, we have been talking with Chris Leonard, who is Schenectady City historian. We depend on your contributions to keep the Historians Podcast online. You'll find our GoFundMe link on the right side of the website, bobcudmore.com, or send a check made out to Bob Cudmore to one twenty five. Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. This is John Gehring, the author of Schenectady Genesis, uh, Volume 2, The Creation of an American City from an Anglo-Dutch Town, circa 1760 to 1800. I've only lived in Schenectady for uh, about 20 years, but when I first came to the city, I just fell in love with the stockade district, walking around, looking at the beautiful uh, houses there, and our wonderful uh, historical society located right in the heart of the stockade. And it just kindled uh, an interest in learning more about Schenectady's history that has never really abated. John Gearing joins us, the author of Schenectady Genesis, Volume 2, The Creation of an American City from an Anglo-Dutch Town from 1760 to 1800. Your book covers a 40-year period 
What was Schenectady like in 1760? Well, 1760, Bob, uh, the French and Indian War, or as it's sometimes known, the Seven Years' War, was just wrapping up, and Schenectady was coming uh, out of kind of a period where the trade that it had been developing to the West in the fur business was stymied by the war. Uh, Detroit Communications with Detroit had been cut off, uh, but Schenectady had sort of survived by servicing uh, British Army units that were in the area with supplies and transportation. Uh, but in 17, by 1760, the war was essentially over. Uh, peace wasn't uh, finalized really until 1763, but the water route to the west had opened up again. And so there was a tremendous uh, built-up demand in Schenectady among the commercial class to get back into business. And that's kind of what they were all leaning toward uh, in 1760 was the uh, the reopening of that water route to Detroit and the uh, beginning uh, restart, I should say, of the fur trade. Mm, kind of reminds me of people waiting for the end of the pandemic. <laughs> a little, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Now, in 1760, the title describes Schenectady as an Anglo-Dutch town. You've talked about that a little bit, but what did that mean? Well, you know, Schenectady is founded originally by uh, by Dutch settlers, uh, primarily from uh, Albany and Rensselaerswick back in uh, 1661. Uh, but by the time of uh, 1760, by the time 100 years had gone by, there had been a slow influx of uh, other folks from uh, England, a few from Ireland, and maybe a few from Germany into uh, into the town. And when I say the town of Schenectady, Bob, I'm, I want to emphasize that uh, the town at that time uh, was quite a bit larger than the city is today. The borders of the town were almost out to where the borders of the county are today. It wouldn't have included uh, Niskayuna or Dwaynesburg, parts of uh, maybe parts of uh, North Glenville, but uh, it was that was a whole town. So there was quite a huge area, uh, and so you had, did have a few folks uh, starting to get in uh, as Schenectady became more and more uh, known. Uh, to the outside world for its advantageous geographical position as the northwest, as the north, I'm sorry, the eastern uh, end mm-hmm. of the great inland water route uh, from uh, Schenectady through the Appalachians to the Midwest, the only such route there was uh, in colonial mm-hmm. America. One topic that attracted your interest because of your legal experience um, was Schenectady's common lands. And what, 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 can you have a definition of that? What were Schenectady's common lands? Well, it was, it was most of the town at one time. Back in, uh, back in 1684, the, uh, the, the people who were living here, uh, the inhabitants at the time, made a second purchase from the uh, Mohawk Nation of additional land. They needed uh, additional lands. They made a purchase of a very large uh, acreage, um, some 85,000 acres, uh, and that was being uh, that was to be managed by uh, a group of uh, men uh, called, who were thinking of them as and you think of them as commissioners. They called them trustees. Um, they were to manage it in trust for the inhabitants, um, rent uh, parcels out, and use the proceeds, uh, you know, for uh, civic improvements and things like that. Uh, but there were even from the beginning there were claims. Of uh, mismanagement, um, there were uh, there was a struggle over the idea that these uh, commissioners had been appointed or trustees had been appointed. Uh, they had nominated themselves basically and been appointed by the, the colonial governor with no input from the people. 
Um, and so there was there was tension right almost from the start uh, as to how they were uh, operating and whether or not their uh, their accounts were were transparent and open and, and auditable by the people. Um, and so that struggle started there, uh, and then it developed uh, into a split between uh, really two groups in the town, and uh, and one and that happened uh, when they got down to the point of. Um, a group that were descendants of those original, or not, but the people who were uh, citizens in 1684 when the, when the big acreage was purchased. The descendants of some of the descendants of those folks uh, put up a legal argument that said, "Hey, we should. Um, those are really our ancestors who bought the land. Um, that 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 land is really owned by by us as their descendants." And it should be split up and uh, parcels handed out to us, and it shouldn't be common anymore. They uh, ended up in the early 1750s suing the trustee, who was the only one left at that point. They were appointed for life, and, and uh, they gradually died off. Uh, no more were, were appointed until there was just the one. Uh, and uh, his nephew, as it turned out, uh, is the one who demanded the land, and he refused to uh, give him his his share, what he considered his share, and so they went to court, and that was probably around 1752, and that battle really lasted, you can see vestiges of it all the way into like the early 1800s, and it was, uh, it, went in, it was in the courts, and it, they tried to solve it in the legislature uh, with laws, and they, everything got dropped or quashed, or the revolution came along and turned it all upside down, and, and just, it just never did get really settled properly. Um, but it caused a lot of, uh, th that battle over the common lands caused a lot of civil unrest in the town uh, because the, the way the trustees ran the common lands uh, is that anyone could use the common lands to gather their firewood or building materials uh, or to, um, as pasturage for their, their hogs, for instance. Uh, but if mm -hmm. it was privatized, that wouldn't have been the case. And so the people of the town, uh, generally, by and large, uh, were against the privatization and wanted to keep the, the common aspect of it. Mm. And this, the existence of the uh, common lands, the fact they were in common, or I, that, that seems to be what I'm understanding from what you're saying, that prevented a more rapid development? I mean, uh, set, new settlers from wherever couldn't, settled there because it, it you know right. was sort of already spoken for well a couple of uh, 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 there were a couple of uh, times when uh, the courts issued injunctions an injunction uh, bars somebody from doing something and so these injunctions barred the trustees uh, or the so-called proprietors from uh, selling or, or leasing any of the land until the case was settled um, and so, yeah, if you were coming to Schenectady uh, looking for land to buy, uh, you, you you would find that it would be difficult uh, if, if both sides wanted to honor the injunction. And there were cases where they, they didn't. Uh, but uh, even if you bought um, an existing farm, say, uh, from someone, it, it turns out there might be a cloud on their title, uh, depending on how they came about you know, having that, that title to their land. Uh, if it tied into the common lands controversy, it might uh, it might tend to scare off a buyer. So mm -hmm. what I noticed looking at the records uh, was that you see uh, population-wise uh, from church records and things, you see more you see a little bit of a bump 
of, of the growth of communities to the west of Schenectady, and Schenectady uh, sort of uh, sitting kind of stagnant for a while in terms of uh, population. And that suggests to me that folks uh, would come here and find out about this controversy uh, and, the, and the legal trouble and the injunctions, and then they would just keep going a little further west until ah. they found a place where there were no impediments, no legal impediments to their settlement. And not to just dwell on the common lands, but these lands were in kind of the outskirts of the Schenectady settlement, which wasn't it based primarily in the in the what we call the stockade section. So this could yeah. be parts of Glenville or Rotterdam or something like that. Yeah, absolutely, Bob. The, uh, the what we think of today as a stockade, they knew of it at the time. They would people would refer to it as the village of Schenectady and being the uh, the center of the town. But yeah, absolutely, Glenville, West Glenville, Rotterdam. Certainly, uh, parts of uh, little pieces of what's now uh, Niskayuna, and even probably up into, generally speaking, the Princetown uh, area. Uh, yeah, this would have all been, you know, 85,000 acres is, is, a, is a lot of a lot of land. It's like there's 480, uh, no, 640 acres per square mile. So uh, that's, uh, you know, it sounds just off the top of my head. It feels like about 13 mm-hmm. square miles of land. It's it, it's a lot. It was enough to support, uh, I think, 15 or 20 sawmills at one point. We're talking with John Gearing about the history of uh, Schenectady in upstate New York from 1760 to 1800. He's author of a, a new book about that. Uh, let me ask you about some people. Who were Christopher Yates and uh, Isaac Vroman? Ah, well, Christopher Yates, a legendary name in, in Schenectady. There's, uh, there's quite a... Uh, a nice uh, plaque on his uh, former house at uh, 26 uh, Front Street in the city, and another uh, series of plaques on another property uh, that, next door at uh, 32 Front Street. Uh, Christopher Yates uh, comes from a family of, of, uh, of folks with a very interesting background. His, his Yates ancestor who came to America was an Englishman who, who came as a part of a military contingent to do uh, guard duty at the the fort in uh, in uh, New York and uh, up in Albany, and he married into a Dutch family. And uh, Yates, subsequent Yates, has uh, continued to marry into Dutch families. Uh, they were in the Albany area for for quite some time, but uh, ended up moving to Schenectady, uh, where they were in the leather business uh, at one point. His his uh, father was a uh, ran a leather business in Schenectady. As you can see, getting the furs in, and of course there were cattle being raised. There's a lot of leather uh, from you know, involved with the fur trade, and so there are opportunities to tan that leather and and, uh, and make it into things we could use, belts and shoes and harnesses and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but Christopher Yates uh, was a surveyor. Um, he was a um, he was deeply involved with uh, Sir William Johnson out in Johnstown, uh, working with him on on land deals as a as a surveyor. He uh, became a uh, a quartermaster in the, during the revolution, responsible for a supply of uh, equipment and food to the American army uh, from this area. Uh, and uh, his uh, his progeny uh, did did quite well. Uh, his uh, descendant Joseph C was an attorney and uh, the first mayor of the city of Schenectady, as well as uh, I think he, he was one of the early governors of New York, the only mm-hmm. New York mm-hmm. uh, governor. Uh, yep. and, uh, Isaac Isaac Vroman uh, also had a house uh, on Front Street, very close to uh, very close to the Yates house. In fact, there's and there's a plaque on that. Uh, and 
the uh, yeah, Roman was a pivotal pivotal figure in the town. He was uh, one of the magistrates, uh, and so a judge, uh, and he was one of the folks behind uh, Schenectady becoming a, uh, a, a, a what they call a borough town and getting its first town charter in the 1760s. Because prior to that, just to return to the common lands for a minute, I touched on the idea that Schenectady, uh, there were these, I had this system with uh, a committee of trustees, but there was no representative government as such. There was no mayor, there was no common council, there were no elections for anything. And by the mid-1760s, the fur trade had taken off. Schenectady had become a major inland port in uh, colonial America. And the folks wanted to, they'd reached a point where they needed to be able to regulate their own activities and, and the commercial life and, and make laws and so forth. And uh, Roman was uh, one of the critical players in pushing for a town charter, which was achieved. And he was actually the first mayor of the town of Schenectady. Uh, there were some issues with the charter, <laughs> and this will maybe touch a little bit on the politics of today. Uh, there were some mm -hmm. issues with the charter because uh, in those days, the, the mayor was appointed by the governor for a one-year term. There was an election for councilmen, but there was only one election. After they were elected, councilmen served for life or on, good beha on their good behavior. You could, you could uh, essentially impeach them and remove them from office if they misbehaved, but that didn't strike the people of Schenectady uh, very well because they'd already had a system sort of like that with the trustees, where once they were in, you couldn't get rid of them. Um, now, looking, when I was down at the New York uh, uh, Historical Society in Manhattan, looking at some of the original documents uh, having to do with this charter, I could, I could see from the notes um, on the, uh, the colonial Secretary of State's uh, files that his reasoning was that he was the one who drafted the charter. His reasoning was that the uh, that if if there were elections, regular elections for these commissioners, they were um, they would be tempted to uh, sort of buy votes by uh, by currying favor with uh, the electorate or granting favors to one or another person. Whereas if they were elected once and uh, there was never real there's never another election. They'd be independent mm -hmm. right. of influence. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like today our federal judges are appointed and serve for life. And then that, that way they're, they're, they can be in, exercise independent judicial judgment. Uh, whereas our representatives, of course, are subject to election. And we've, we've heard over the years, uh, uh, decades, really, many claims that uh, uh, there's too much influence of big money or whatever in politics and so forth. And uh, that was that, those ideas were still mm -hmm. current back in 1764. Right. I wanted to. We have about five minutes left in the program. I wanted to get in uh, something about um, Susan Staffa, who was your predecessor, if you will. She she did the first volume of of Schenectady history, and you um, said uh, to, to the Daily Gazette, I believe, that uh, finishing up Susan Staffa's work was challenging. Um, she was the author of a book about Schenectady from its founding in 1661 up to 1760. Why was it a challenge to proceed on with Staffa's work, and how did you respond to the challenge? Dr. Staffa's, uh, yeah, she did volume one, and it was really her intention to, to cover the whole time period that both uh, her book and my book uh, cover and to have it done in time for uh, the city's bicentennial. 
but she uh, was taken ill uh, during the, the work on it, and she wasn't able to, to finish it. And the, uh, the organization that supported her and, support, and which supported me, the Colonial Schenectady Foundation, without whose support uh, neither of these books uh, would have ever seen the light of day, um, mm-hmm. they <clears throat> worked with her and decided that they would have to, they would proceed with a volume one uh, because she was ill. And, uh, and in fact, she never recovered to the point of being able to, to finish uh, volume two. But Dr. Stafford was a, a sociologist, or anthropologist, I, I think it is, by, by training. And so she had looked at uh, Schenectady from, uh, from that standpoint. Uh, and she had done a, her, uh, her dissertation, uh, looked at the, the leading families of Cairo during the Middle Ages and the effect they had on the development of Cairo. I could see elements of that approach in her work on uh, on Schenectady, uh, and she was focusing heavily, uh, of course, in those times on the Dutch families, the initial, the, the key Dutch families of Schenectady uh, and their effect. And then I come along, and now the challenge is to show how the, this influx of new people um, Merchants such as Daniel Campbell, uh, Finn and Ellis, John Duncan, folks like that were kind of, in a way, they were integrated into Schenectady uh, society and became part of Schenectady's civil and commercial life. But in other ways, they brought in sort of the uh, the outside influence of uh, of England or Scotland. Um, and you can look at, say, for instance, the uh, the ethnicity of like the tavern owners. You know, mm-hmm. to a certain point. There are many taverns in Schenectady. The tavern owners are all Dutch. And then you start to see English, a few English tavern owners. And you start to see English doctors and English lawyers. And so you get this sense of a sort of leavening of uh, what had been a, a pretty strictly uh, Dutch, uh, Anglo, uh, Dutch society. Now the civil life is, is kind of taking on another flavor as well. And Dutch is still spoken by folks. Uh, the core of Schenectady, the village, is is still resolutely uh, Dutch. The Dutch folks uh, uh, live there. If you look at the uh, militia rosters from the uh, 1760s, uh, the uh, the regiment from or the company from the village, it's like every name is is Dutch. And if you look uh, up in the outskirts, sort of more towards the Duanesburg area, uh, you see a lot of German names and some Irish names. Uh, so uh, that was my challenge: was to uh, to take you know the sort of Dutch core of of the Schenectady's history, and then show how it begins to sort of evolve a little bit and, and become uh, more ethnically diverse. Uh, there's religious diversity. You have in the 17 uh, late 1750s, you have the um, the Church of England, which we know today as St George's Episcopal Church, being built. And you have the rise of uh, the uh, the Methodist Church which sort of starts sharing that building, and then they get their own. Um, so there's uh, and things like that. So you, you get not, not just the, uh, the Dutch influence is still there, it's still very strong, uh, but you're starting to get uh, a little bit of a broader culture from other countries that's starting to change the town a little. And we just have a few seconds left, but I gather that some of the material in your book is brand new, not from other sources. Bob, I tried to go back to uh, original sources whenever whenever I could. It's always good to do that as, as a historian. And thankfully, uh, between the, the County Historical Society, which has fantastic uh, archives, 
uh, as well as places such as the uh, New York State Historical Association in Cooperstown, uh, the State Archives. I think I've already mentioned the uh, the New York uh, Historical Society down in Manhattan, uh, the Albany Institute. Uh, they all have great original documents from that period. In, in terms of the common lands argument, the Historical Society um, has recently, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how recently, but since Susan wrote uh, Volume 1, accepted a donation of uh, papers, a collection of papers, I think it's called the Strong Collection, that uh, a citizen had put together kind of documenting their family history. But their family history, the people they were looking at were heavily tied in with uh, the, um, the Common Lands controversy. So the Strong Collection has a tremendous uh, resource for uh, information on the okay. Common Lands uh, issue. All right. John Gearing has joined us, the author of Schenectady Genesis, Volume 2, The Creation of an American City from an Anglo-Dutch Town from 1760 to 1800. Thanks also to Christopher Leonard for appearing on the program. He's the editor of this new book on Schenectady history. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.